right, guys. Well, let's let's talk about worship in the Sabbath. Um, first question: What did y'all say? Let me go back to it here. Forget it. There you go. Why do you think worship is important, man? I got to get this thing all down here. I don't know if I'm on there anymore. By the way, I just sat. Um, why is worship important, everybody? What makes worship important? Okay, it's important because it's a obedience. Okay. Do what back there? It's what we were created for. We were created to glorify Him. That's good. Fulfilling our. Yeah. It's what fulfills us too. It yeah. I mean that's interesting. You know, my dog is a hunting dog. Hunting dog, and there's nothing that makes my dog come alive more than when she's hunting. All right, she just, it's like she's made to do it. And when she does it, she is, it's just the most beautiful thing in the world to watch her and just be as absolutely flourishing as you could possibly be. You know, nothing she does is, is and that's what worship is to us as humans. We, we, we were made to worship as a revealing image of God. Good. So we're made, it's by, it's our nature. It's our most fundamental nature to worship, uh, rightfully. I'm not talking about the sinful nature, of course. Um, uh, it's, an, it's an act of obedience. What else? It's an outward expression of our thanks. Outward expression of our thanks. Good. That's good. Huh? And praise. And praise. Yeah. I love this quote because this everything we've said is true. In fact, I'm going to re-highlight them in a minute in our introduction to the, in the handout. But at the very heart and soul of it, what makes worship so important is its truth. It's the truth. It's God is worthy. I mean, he is, he, in, in other words, how do I, this is harder to say, honestly, but it's odd because it's actually the very heart of worship. Worship is important because it's just the truth that, that to encounter God, it's the most uh, right response to God. You know, if you were to encounter a, uh, someone on the street, you know, that was hemorrhaging blood, it, you know, it's just true. It's just the true thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's the right response to that person to get down there and, and do something to stop the bleeding. You just, it's just what you do. Well, the reaction to meeting God, if we were to meet God, which we do in worship, but to encounter God is, the response is to worship. It's to go, oh. It connects us. Well, it connects us, too. That's right. So there's it goes a, both ways. A, yeah. So there is, okay, so now another reason to worship is it is salvific. It's edifying. It's, it's how we partake of the divine presence. We do that in worship. So, and clearly, uh, as a church, as we'll see, worship, of course, is the defining, that's how the church, we are at a, a, a what we are at the very core of who we are as a church is we are a worshiping assembly. We are an ecclesia. The word ecclesia means called out into an assembly of worship. So it's actually what we are. We are worshipers as a church. Can worship be evangelistic? Yes. Okay. Talk to me about that, everybody. How can it be? What is? What makes it evangelistic? God is lifted up. Okay. Uh, there's a word is proclaimed. Mm-hmm. There's uh, uh, 
the evangel being present? The what? Evangel. And talk to me about that. Who's the evangel? The Holy Spirit. There you go. You've read. You've had to read uh, David Wells' little book, The Evangelist of God. Did you read that little book? Uh, I don't recall. Well, anyway, he's got a book called The Evangelist of God, and it's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Evangelist of God. Yes. So, so what what makes worship evangelistic? And this is what this is kind of a trick question because immediately what you might be tempted to do is to start thinking about the kinds of programs, the kinds of things you would do in order to be a seeker friendly church or a seeker, you know, whatever church. Um, you know, would you would you do certain things? And no, what we're going to say is it's evangelistic. Back to Gary's point, precisely because if God is there, God is inherently the evangel. I mean, there is a revelation of God there and a and the means of grace through which we can encounter God there. It's by its very nature. And this is something I would give anything for us as a church to grow in, quite frankly. I think there's a lot of inhibition about bringing people to worship because we we think that what's going to get people to conversion is something that will uh, meet their felt needs. We think that, that oh, they're not going to want to come, or if they come, it's not going to be in, in, impactful unless it's been tailor-made for them. So I gave you this, this, uh, this quote because it really speaks to how, you know, we have already talked about uh, the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, and preparing, you know, the whole idea of effectual calling. Remember that? And the idea is what it, what makes, you know, so therefore, if, as Wesley, you remember, says, if God in his providence and by his spirit is calling someone to himself to bring them into an encounter with God through ministry of word and sacrament and community of the fellowship of believers is to bring them into that which they already have a sympathy for. They are, God has given them a sympathy for wanting that. They're yearning for that, waiting for it to be re- re- brought into their lives. And, and so this, this is kind of gets at that. Let me, let me just read it for us, or unless someone else wants to. Would you, anybody like to read it? Go ahead, Josh. You, you have good eyes, I bet. Can't read the whole thing. <laughs> okay, here, I'll do it. The world, the world has... The world had not satisfied me the way I it had promised, the way I had anticipated. The world's message and methods had hung me out to dry. I hungered desperately for something, someone out of this world. I was broken and longing for something transcendent. I was very thankful when I walked into a church that was very different, a church where the otherness of God was sensed immediately. In the music, in the message, and in the mingling afterward, it was clear that God was the guest of honor there. I had suffered the consequences of the modern world's emphasis on the individual, and I was unbelievably refreshed to to discover a place that took the focus off of me and put it on him. I was drawn in by the glorious mystery of it all. I was being evangelized, not by a man-centered show, but by a God-centered atmosphere. It was quite literally out of this world. This is such an important quote. Because, I, again, I think we really make a huge mistake in, mis, in misunderstanding what, what is the sympathy that's within a human person's heart if they are being effectually called by God. If God really is the divine evangelist, 
What is the sympathy? What is it this person is hungering for? It may be through the providence of going through a divorce. It may be through the providence of having to work hard and all the pressures of having to perform every week. It may be the providence of God that has, that has got a person who has experienced all the entertainment and all the selfish, individualistic, immediate gratifying things in the world that they could, and it never really satisfied. You don't know what God's been doing. But if God is at work, what is going to save them, what makes worship evangelistic is its otherworldliness. It's the fact that it's quite literally the end of the out of this world experience. And I would do anything to bring to help us as a church, this church, because I don't think we have the confidence of that right now, sometimes. I think we sometimes really are still waiting for, well, I'll take them to this because, oh, it's made for them. No, maybe if God is at work in their life, it's exactly what they what will draw them is the otherness of God in the way that he describes it here. Um, I, I, I've said this many times. It's, it's amazing how often those who come to worship, that are friends of people who have not been going to church, when they come, it's precisely because it's just so different. But that's what they were expecting. That's what they're wanting. I, they didn't want to go to the things they can go to all day. And uh, so unbelievers have less of a problem with our worship than the people who come from the, from the Christian, you know, evangelical, you know, kind of context sometimes. It's interesting. All right, we're going to leave this next one because I don't know if we'll get to it about the, the, uh, the Sabbath. We'll get back to that. Um, let's go ahead and turn to our handout now. Um, and we are doing it, uh, Worship and Sabbath. I have two of them here. Now I've got to remember which one's the one I want you to look at here. I think it's this one here. There we go. Let's get this as big as I can get it for y'all. Is this it? I think it is. That doesn't look right. Where's my peach? There it is. Okay, I think this is it, yeah. All righty. I'm going to get it bigger, I promise. Can y'all read that? Is that big enough? Not really. <laughs> huh. Well, what am I going to do? That's about as big as I can get it, I think. How else can I do that? Let's see here if I can get a little bit bigger. Uh, I just want to go a little bit. Can I get all that in there? It's close. All right, I'll I'll stick it. How does that? Is that pretty close? Do what? Much better. It's good. Beautiful. All right. So let's talk about worship, but before we do, let's, let's ask God to, to bless us. Would you uh, pray for us, Sam? Yep. Lord God, thank you for this evening. Thank you that we can come together around your word and we can learn from the great minds that have come before us. Thank you for uh, this session of being able to study confessional theology, that we come uh, professing to believe and uh, seeking knowledge through that belief, Lord. So we do pray for this time. We pray that it would be edifying to us, Lord. Thank you for Preston. We pray that you would uh, bless him as he teaches us and, uh, and uh, bless our session together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So our confession begins with this comment here. The light of nature showeth that there is a God. There's the truth. There is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all is good and does good to all and is therefore to be feared. Now remember, when we talk about being feared, what we mean is 
rightfully fearing. I mean, the, the word means what it says, fear. And, and you fear that which is you, you and your, and your and whatever you have empowered to be the, uh, to hold your blessing and curse in life is what you fear. You fear a professor if you know that professor has the power to make or break your vocational goals, right? You fear someone like that. So when it talks about fear, it's recognizing that this is the God, this is the source of my flourishing. How I relate to this being is going to determine whether I flourish or not. That's what it means to fear God. And so to fear God is to understand that he is the source of all good. That's what it means by, and therefore to be feared. Isn't that that an interesting way of understanding fear, by the way? I think a lot of people misunderstand the fear of the Lord. It means fear, so I don't want to. I don't want to equivocate on that. Some people all respect. Well, okay, that's right. But no, man, this is. Oh my God, I'm scared to death of this God because this God has the power to destroy me or to bless me, <laughs> and he, and he's and it's true. He's just he is who he is, and so you'd fear him. But the fear is not in the sense of yes. To fear him is meant to be that you. There's no one else you want to be in good with than him. And that's what it means. And therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. That's how the topic of worship begins in our confession of faith. It begins with, well, who is God? Not us. I mean, you would have expected to start, well, you know, we need to worship. We need to get edified. We need to have an experience. We need to do it. It could have been all about us, but no, it starts with, no, this is all about God and a right response to, to a being like this. So as I get into there, um, I, I just talk very briefly about some of the things we've already said, so I won't go through them again. What are some of the ways that we discern the centrality of worship in scripture? Well, it gets to the very heart and soul of what the definition of church is. And, and so I give you some information about that, that, that this idea of an assembly, the ecclesia, it's, it's, it's throughout the redemptive history, it's descriptive of those who assemble for the sake of corporate worship. It's an assembly. Two, worship is central to our identity. Back to what we've said already, uh, so I won't repeat it again. It is at the very heart of who we are. We were created to worship. If my, you know, like my dog was created to hunt and is never more satisfied and flourishing when she hunts, we were created as worshipful beings. And that's what we do. That's our vocation. You know the word liturgy? It's the vocation of the people. That's what that word means in Latin. It's the work of the people. Liturgy. So it is our work. It is what we're called to do, to image God and, and to participate in worship. And so there's some great... You know, praise. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Um, Lester Ruth says it this way. I'm just quoting a few things in here. You can follow me if you can find it. If God is one of the reasons we offer worship, we can also point to ourselves. For worship is the ultimate original human vocation. People are not, first of all, homo sapiens, knowing creatures. That came right out of the Enlightenment, by the way. That's not what we are. Fundamentally, we are knowing creatures, but that's not fundamentally what we are. But we are created by God to be worshiping creatures. What distinguishes humanity? Think about it. What does what distinguishes us from all other creatures? Other creatures have knowledge, not as sophisticated as ours, but they have knowledge. You can't tell me my dog. It's amazing the memory of a dog. You know, I'm into dogs. It just keeps coming back into my head. 
and I love that that show. But but there's been some really cool shows on. Uh, I love the nature, cha- uh, the uh, natural, you know, National Geographic, and they've been doing some stuff on dogs, and uh, it's just phenomenal. I just every time I look at them, I just can't believe how cool they are. But they, the memory. I mean, you know, you can be away from a dog for like a year, and you'll walk into their life, and they'll know exactly who you are, and they'll get excited. You know, they have an amazing memory. So do cats. And cats too, I'm sure, but I just don't know much about cats. So do who that was one of my vows I took when I got married. Is I couldn't have a cat because <laughs> my wife is allergic to them. Um, so I'm happy not to have a cat. I like to add with fear too is just that awe and reverence of the Lord. Mm-hmm. 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 Worship is central to our identity and purpose in our salvation. Um, you know, it's it's amazing how often, you know, I'm thinking, I don't know if I have it here. Did I quote it here? Um, there's a quote, you know, but I think, I'm thinking of Ezekiel, 64 times that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And, and he says, and there's one passage where Ezekiel says, now, Israel, I'm not saving you for your sake. That's, that's pretty bold. I mean, that, that just flies right in the face of our, our spirituality. I'm not saving you. What are you talking about? I'm not really saving you for your sake, ultimately. It's for my sake that my name might be known and worshipped that I'm saving you. All of salvation is driven by the, re, by the rightful worship principle. It's, it's, it's something that is meant to expo- reveal who God is. That's the point of John uh, Romans 9. You know, that there are vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, and they're both legitimate insofar as they would move men to awe and worship. So... That, that, by the way, there's nothing like worship that resets your button. I mean, you think about it, our whole life is driven around ourselves, pretty much. And um, worship has a way of really, I mean, this is where it really challenges you in your theology. <laughs> because what, to come in there and, and to be told that life doesn't revolve around you, Preston. It really doesn't. It's not the ultimate purpose of life is that you would be pleased. And it really humbles you, really humbles you to hear that. The Lord say, I'm not saving you for yourself. No, it is for us too. We are edi- The irony is we are never more edified, we're never more flourishing, we're never more blessed than when we are restored to the beings that we were meant to be. Kind of back to my dog illustration. My dog is never more fulfilled than when she is doing what she was, you know, programmed to do. Which is use her nose. I mean, it's just amazing how much fun she has putting that nose on the ground and just sniffing it all up. And it's nef- nothing. And I don't y'all experience that. I mean, I will. I I really can identify with this. Look, I mean, to me, worship really is you know the highlight of the week. There's just something when I'm sitting in that room. It's just such a great experience to be gathered with the people of God, and and just doing that with y'all. It's just an incredibly satisfying experience. That was so true for us the Sunday after Dan died. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. said to us, we didn't think we'd see you in church. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't want to be anyplace else mm-hmm. because it's we need each other. Even yeah, whether yes. Say anything to I know. Or not, there's the, the presence is there. It is. You come, yeah, amen. Well said. So, uh, so, yeah, it's this idea of worship that we're talking about. Um, would someone read... Uh, uh, Let's go ahead and read the whole verse, the whole section. This is Westminster now, 21. If someone read number one, and, and just I know some of it's repeating what I've already done. 
The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So we call this, again, this goes, now notice what's happening here. Uh, We've talked about the first part. What sticks out to you about this, especially the second part? That God teaches us how to worship. He institutes it. Right. I mean, think about how that relates to worship. What is worship? A worship is is us acknowledging what we said earlier, his lordship and sovereignty over all things in our life. Now, how would you, I mean, the, most, the most incredible way to, to, to ironically not worship is worship him according to our own imaginations, i.e. we become sovereign over what we do. We... Annul the very lordship and sovereignty of God by being too creative, quote unquote. Now, does that bother you a little bit? I'm not sure what you mean. Yeah, you didn't like that that little way I put it, did you? Think about it. In some manners, worship is meant to be a response, not a creative enterprise. Cain had a problem with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, worship by the very nature, it's, this, it's moving into the very, it's, it's a responsive activity. It's a responsive activity. God speaks, we respond. God reveals, we respond. God, we see God, we respond. You think about revelations, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Huge example of what worship is all about. The door of heaven opens and behold, they see and they begin to worship. It's not something that, that is, worship is not something that is produced from from within us up to God. It's a response of to God to us and us the responding to that. God initiates worship. That's why we start every service with a call to worship. There's a symbol there that God has spoken and he is the first to speak. Now we may be there yearning and desiring and wanting, but God opens the worship up with his own coming to us. So there's a constant in worship there's a constant God human word and then human God word in activity going on. Like Moses going up to the hill, down the hill, up the hill, down the hill. There's a kind of God human word, human God word interaction going on, like the ladder, like Jacob's ladder. Well, if we're really temple people, that would be our reason. There you go. That's right. I mean, it would, it would just be natural. I, I would. Yeah, yeah. So there really is a sense, we're going to talk more about this idea of the regulative principle in the way in which we are regulated by God and his instructions. Now, why do you think that is practically? Why would it be so important? We'll get to this stuff. Let's let's hold off on that. Just notice that. We're going to get to that. It's one of the big things we're going to talk about later. Notice number two, then. Someone read that. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures, creature, and since the fall, great, not without a mediator, not in the mediation 
of, nor in the mediation, yeah. Nor in the, or in the mediation of, of any other, but of Christ alone. Right. So here we have this idea that it, it worship is to be to God alone, the Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not to angels, not to saints, or any other creatures. Um, and then, not without a mediator. After the fall, we no longer had immediate access to God. We were excommunicated from his presence in, in Genesis 1, right, or 3. We were knocked out of the very presence of God. And therefore, from then on, to get through the seraphim and seraph, the, the, the angels holding the flaming swords, going into the Holy of Holies required a mediator, a sacrifice, one that could sacrifice for the atonement of our sins. And, that, and that's all impregnated in, in the temple itself. Now, these next three uh, passages will talk about what you do and where it talks a lot about prayer. And think about, there's a lot of praying in the service. Praying is done every time we sing a song. That's a prayer. Which is, by the way, why one of the things you'll notice is some, sometimes songs are, but we try not to preach in songs. <laughs> this is not for me to say it's meant to be a prayer, typically. Now, there are some proclamations, confessions of faith, if you will, in prayers. But but songs are typically but there's there's verbal prayers there's sung prayers, uh, led prayers whatever but there's a lot of prayers and it hooks through the prayers it talks about the kind of you know I'm gonna go back to that I want to um, uh, do that but what I want to do before we go much further is is just work through then based on our confession and and I'll be pointing you to some other things what would what we would describe as seven fundamental principles of Christian worship. But before we do, is there anything else somebody's wanting to say right now? We're going to work through this uh, a little bit, some of the implications of what we just read, and work it out with our confession as well. But anything you're thinking about? Yeah. Something that I was, I was reading just kind of on top of this, just like how worship also keeps our relationship with God in perspective. Too. Yes, it does. It's a reset. Absolutely. Okay, so these are some of these are more obvious than others. Um, any other thoughts, questions? You have a question about anything that just got read, bothering you? All right, so let's um, let's just kind of walk through these. And any time you want to slow down, we can. But uh, um, but we'll do this. Doxology principle. Think, what is doxology? We, we sing doxologies. What are they? It's, it's a it's a prayer of praise praise and we we've said this because god-centered and so the the point i want to make though is that that worship is not worship unless it's god-centered worship it's centered on god god is the god's the person that this is about you know it's and and you know it's just it's amazing how obvious that is but how quickly you can move away from that um one of the traditions in worship that's fallen down. And we do do some clapping sometimes, like when people get baptized. But but there's a real subtle shift where worship becomes about performance or entertainment. And very subtly, you know, and and, and we all know, you know, entertainment's the kind of thing that we know it when, we sent, when we smell it. It's something that makes you want to clap. It's something that makes you want to focus on this person that just did it. And worship isn't supposed to do that. Worship is meant to focus on, you know, one of the things that we, uh, you know, so, so where that's going to turn us is we're going to, when we start talking about the use of art, whether it's musical arts, you know, uh, visual arts, uh, whatever they are, 
There's a question that is always being asked if you understand this principle. And that is, is this art, this use of instrument, this use of visual, whatever, does it draw attention to itself or does it, is it an accompaniment versus a performance, if you will? Does it accompany, is it the kind of thing that frames what is happening here? Obviously, one of the big conversations we had was, what do we put in the chancel service? The chancel. One of the reasons we went towards a semi-representational art piece was so that we wouldn't be focusing on the de- you know, on, on this sort of thing in a manner that would give us any kind of, that would in any way distract from the Word giving us the content. We, we wanted the Word of God. So some people come to me and say, what, what does that mean? And I will say, Come to our worship and then you tell me. But I will say, how does it make you feel? What's the sense that you get now when you walk into the room? Hopefully it's going to be the sense of a transcendence or something's sacred here. Just just in a very vague way, something's big going on here. If that's all you got from that, it would have been a success. It's semi-representational. A simple cross versus... A cross that has all the figures of Jesus on it. Now, again, you think, well, why would the Puritans very concerned about that? Because very subtly, the word is being replaced with this very realis- realism kind of an image that now replaces the. In other words, there's something that that we we want the word of God to inform everything that we're doing there. That's where He's revealed Himself. He hasn't given us an image to reveal Himself with. He just doesn't. We don't even know what Jesus looked like for that matter. Isn't that amazing? Not, we don't have a clue. You know? And so, I mean, it's just, other than the fact that he was probably very Palestinian looking, <laughs> if you will, um, but other than that, there's just no clue whatsoever. Was he tall? Was he large? Was he fat? Was he skinny? Was he, you know, short and stubby legs? Was he tall? You know, I mean, you could just go on and on and on. Did he have a robust beard? Did he not have a robust beard? We don't know. And the point is that that's not the point. <laughs> and so there's a, that's, that's sort of the thing that's going on here. When we start thinking about God-centered, what that's going to have to do is be very, it's going to change the way you even use, we were talking about this in the music team today, that, that um, you know, instruments are there to assist the congregation in prayer. Not to replace the congregation in prayer. And so we have a tendency to lean, as you know, away from choirs. We, we, we only use choirs in worship in a very limited way, which is what we call a liturgical choir, where, the, where the, the choir is actually doing what a priest would do in, a, in an accompaniment way in prayer. And so we're very limited there. Now, we can go to another place and have big old time choirs, okay? We were, you know, in performance, if you will. But it's not worship. You all do it very well. We've been in a lot of churches. Mm, mm. A lot of them have been performance-oriented, mm-hmm. and it takes away. It does. You, you feel it passive. It is. It, it makes you feel passive. Or it makes you angry. <laughs> well, I mean, I, and again, I don't try to judge their hearts or anything, and I don't want to do that here. No, but no, She's talking about the music. Yeah, but but my, you hear my, I know. But, but I'm just saying, you know, let's, yeah, it's it's that happens. Okay, another thing about doxology, we just mentioned it, is... And we're going to come back to this in a minute for another principle. But just remember that doxology is evangelism. 
If therefore the whole church comes together, and if an unbeliever enters, they are called to account by all the secrets of their hearts are disclosed, and so falling on their face, they will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's a quote from Paul in Corinthians. I don't give the reference there. He's, Paul is, you can learn a lot about what not to do in worship by his rebuke of the Corinthian church. And he's trying to clarify what's supposed to happen here. And uh, this is a quote from Corinthians. Um, and I've already given you that testimony. So doxology will be expressed in two ways. One, it will be expressed in what we do in worship. No, think, we didn't think about it. It's not how we do It's both how we worship, as in to direct the forms like music and all those things in a way that doesn't replace God and his, but it's also what we do. So in other words, we worship God by doing only what he tells us to do and nothing more, nothing less. Now this gets back to the regular principle. We'll talk about it. Well, here it is now. Number two. So let's go to number two, then we'll stop. Have you, I want you to just stop for a minute and think for a minute about something. Um, and if someone would read Ezekiel 20, verse 27 through 32. Could somebody turn their Bibles and be ready to read that in a minute? So when you, go to, when you think about God and worship experience through the whole Bible, start in Genesis in your head and go all the way through 21, uh, Revelations. What, what, what do you, what do you, what's sort of the most obvious thing that you begin to discern about how God wants us to worship? Can you imagine God in any redemptive era saying, worship me any way you want? When he set up the temple, can you imagine God saying, hey man, be creative? <laughs> no, I mean, if you get anything, if you read Leviticus... What you read is this incredibly anal God about worship, if I may say it plainly. I mean, this is a God that just was like every jot and tittle was meticulously micromanaged to the tilt. And you think, what's going on with that? In fact, it's the, it's, there was never a time when Israel was not worshiping Yahweh. Did you know that? The problem was never that Israel didn't worship Yahweh, quote-unquote. It's that they took it upon themselves to worship Yahweh in a manner that syncretized other idols from their culture into their worship that got God's all upset. It's, they were worshiping, if you remember Baal, when Moses came down and they were out there doing the Baal thing, they were worshiping God. Declared a feast day. Yeah, for God, using a bowl from this pagan religion. And it's an image of what we do in worship when we start to, to basic, what are we really worshiping? In the name of God, what are we, the, what you actually do is what you're worshiping, even if it's in the name of God. So if our culture is all about entertainment, efficiency, you know, serving some other end, some other God, then that will drive the service in a manner that we're actually violating this principle. So to try to help you see it, uh, someone read uh, 27 through 32 in Ezekiel 20. I have it. And if someone else, by the way, could turn to, who else can read for me? Anybody else got a Bible? Deuteronomy 12, go for it, uh, after this one. Okay, go ahead and read uh, Ezekiel. Therefore, son of man, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In this also your fathers blasphemed me by forsaking me. 
When I brought them into the land, I had sworn to give them, and they saw, they saw any high hill or any leafy tree. They were, they were offered their sacrifices, made offerings that provoked me to anger, and presented their fragrant, their fragrant incense, and poured out their drink offerings. Then I said to them, "What is this high place you go to? It is called Bama to this day." Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You will defile yourselves the way your fathers did and lust after their vile images. When you offer your gifts, the sacrifice of your sons in the fire, you continue to defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. Am I to, am I to let you inquire of me, O house of Israel? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will not let you inquire of me. And you say, we want to be like the nations, like mm. the peoples of the mm. world, who would serve wood and stone. But what you have in mind will never happen. God, says passage. Every time I hear it, I can't, it just, I, it just, every time I hear it, I think, oh my gosh, that is such a scary passage. I mean, so think about how it starts off. Let's just, let's just read this like we tend to read Bibles, right? And we take it. We don't bother to understand the redemptive historical covenant context. Uh, it's so dangerous to read the Bible and forget that it's in a covenant. And therefore, somehow this relates to that covenant. So here we have what's called, a, a, in literature language, it's a classic prophetic court case. We, we've got a court case going here. And the prophet is, is of course, the, the, uh, the lawyer that, that prosecutes the course, the prosecutor. <laughs> And we, so it's all in the genre. I won't go through and show you all the stuff that's in that literature to show you that's a prophetic court case kind of on a divine judgment oracle, we call it. And there's a series of indictments. And that first one that you read was what? Uh, it was something about the leafy tree. Repeat that phrase a little bit. Um, right at the beginning. Yeah. Here's the indictment. Um, I had sworn to give them the land I had sworn to give them. And they saw a high hill or any leafy tree. There they offered their sacrifices. Now, I'm thinking, I just took that right out of context. Like, man, what's your problem, God? These people are excited to worship you. Every, every hill they saw, man, they went up there and did a sacrifice. Oh, man, God, come on, get a grip. Loosen up, man. God, come on, loosen up. Let these people worship you. I mean, did you notice they're worshiping? But his, he's all been out of shape because they're worshiping God under every high tr you know, leafy tree and under every high hill, whatever that language is. Right? What's the problem? Disobedience, rebellion. Okay, why? Why is that disobedient and rebellion? What were they doing? That's why you worship Baal. Do what? That's how you worship Baal. I mean, did you see at the very end what it said? What was the very last thing that it said in that indictment? About everybody else. Yes. You, you, you're, you're trying to make this accessible to the world. You're trying to make this, you're, you're actually trying to, uh, what's the word I want to look there? Nice word that we often, I mean, you could call it contextualization maybe, but, but certainly that's not wrong. There is a vernacular principle. We're going to talk about that other side in a minute. But, but there's, what, there's something wrong with the fact that they're worshiping God in a manner that is borrowed from the way the world would worship God. Well, that's the word that I'm using here, syncretism and worship. But there's, but I want you, it wouldn't, my guess is it wouldn't have come across like that. I mean, I don't think anyone says, okay, my purpose in worship is to syncretize. 
what they're doing is they're asking the wrong question. They're, they're missing the point of the word. They're asking the question, instead of the question being, how can we worship God in a manner that's acceptable to God? Very subtly, the question is, how can I worship in a way that other people will like it? That other people will want to come? In a, way, in a manner that appeals to sympathies in those people that are that they have, so it's a kind of um, what's the word? It's it's accommodation, compromise, uh, making it relevant. Yeah, just somehow. Now I know y'all going to put. We're going to push back in a minute because there is another side to all this. But very subtly, syncretism is they were the idea of the hill is that God had very carefully prescribed worship in a very specific movements that were to come about in the context of their temple and to go and make it accessible and easy and and something that anybody in the world could come to was then to transition from this being about God and being the true God, not a false God, because that's the whole point of the regulation of worship, to make sure that we were worshiping the true God, not one that we've fabricated in our head. And so... Look at this passage in Deuteronomy. Someone who, who's going to read that? And listen to these words, man. And light, remember what you just read, and let's listen to these words now. This is, now we're going back to the actual covenant. It's 1 to 10 and 13? Yeah. Okay. Um, these are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you shall live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, Mm. on the high mountains and on the hills and under Mm. every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes, to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, ever one doing what is right in his own eyes. Mm. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. Uh, the, The 13. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see. So what is he, what's, what, he, now you saw that phrase. Did you hear the phrase? Under every leafy tree and under every high hill. Now we know what's going on. The prophet Ezekiel quotes Deuteronomy, and basically what they were doing is they were utilizing the very methods that the nations utilized to worship, and they just changed it over to God. And I can hear him say, we're going to do that because... This way, it's going to make it more accessible to the nations. You know, it's not always better worship that the nations want to come. That's why I keep emphasizing. We want to do worship in a manner where people, where we are appealing to sympathies that are the Holy Spirit sympathies. 
not sympathies that are the sympathies of an idol. And very subtly, that's what, what we do when we forget this, this very important principle falls right out of the doxology principle. This is really a, the intent of this service is to be God-centered. And therefore, God has given us a sovereign manner in which he wants us to worship. And it's not for us to take away from that or add to it, lest we in our own imaginations or, or according to our own, whatever that last phrase was in Deuteronomy, according to our own will or whatever it is, that we start creating a worship service versus responding to God in worship. Very subtle thing there going on. Yeah. How do we, or how do you look at it with when David, he danced and the foot fell off or whatever. Um, just that whole him worshiping God um, because of the art coming and well, I don't know that dancing is wrong. I don't either. I don't think it is either. Well, but we'd have to go to Scripture to find out. Yeah. And see if it's a response in Scripture that's that's appropriate. I think you see it in Psalms, for instance. Um, you'll see a lot more in, Deuteron- in, in Corinthians where he's dealing with some accesses, where things were out of order, disorderly, blah, 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 blah. But, um, but yeah. Uh, well, that's the point, though. Is that a, you know, is it appropriate? What kind of dancing if you dance? At what point does dancing become an element of worship rather than a very natural and spontaneous response to God, you know, and just moving in our praise? Um, So Calvin put it this way. Worship should be to God alone and without any dependence on human will. All mixtures by which the pure simplicity of lawful worship, notice lawful, as in prescribed by God, is corrupted are condemned. We are to follow in all simplicity what he has ordained by his word without adding anything at all to it. Notice how this principle is mentioned in our own confession. In the book of church order, it begins, the preface begins, Christ as king has given to his church officers oracles and ordinances, and especially has he ordained there in his system of doctrine, government, discipline, and worship, all of which are expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary inference may be deduced from and to which he commands that nothing be added or that, that from them not be taken away. That's the regular principle. We've talked about that many times already when we talked about Scripture. Remember that and how we interpret Scripture? Um, as we go to our chapter 47, again, this is just a consensus. This is how we try to, here's our, con- our consensus about what the Scripture is teaching, and I've given you some Scripture already. Since the Holy Scriptures are the only infallible rule of faith and practice, The principles of public worship must be derived from the Bible and from no other source. The scriptures forbids the worshiping of God by images or in any other way not appointed in his word and requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. Which means the first thing you're going to have to ask is, well, then what what is, what, what what has God told us to do in worship? What are we supposed to be doing in worship? And that's very clearly articulated for us in the foundation. Remember, Christ is the corner. Apostles, the church built upon the foundation of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. So the question is, what is the foundation? What is the doctrinal and worshipful foundation that the apostles gave to us? A passage like Acts makes it very clear. There's other places I could turn for prayers. I'd have to go. If you would say, if you're saying, let's add a fifth, let's uh, let's add a fifth or a fourth. Uh, element to worship, let's do drama, we would say no. If there was a kind of drama that you felt legit for sacraments, only two, 
There was, of course, the reading and the preaching of the Word of God. He was a, a natural exp- extension, say, of Word, or say, one over a prayer, then maybe you could do it. Now, the problem with that is, does it draw attention to itself as a distinct element, or would it be done in a manner that you would... So, for instance, if... Uh, I've been, you know, could I... There's oftentimes a subjective call, and we just kind of know it when we see it. But how dramatic can a preacher be? At what point is the dramatic presentation become usurp the the word? And at what point does it actually um, frame it or accompany it? And and so there's a kind of there's a subjectivity here that relates to the people and how they are thinking, and that relates to the you know whole situation. But that's the kind of conversation you would have to have. Um, so that's the regulative principle. Any questions about that? Any thoughts? What do y'all think about this? It's kind of, I mean, this is a perfect, you just do that. Probably been a good place to put it anyway. Go to page, uh, I'll get an invitation where we are. Okay, this is a lot of stuff I know. We're not going to have the time to do all this. Where's the vernacular principle? That I already, I think I already did get through it. There's it called the vernacular principle. Here it is. Whoa, there it is. Look at number five, which is on page... Oh, my gosh. Do I not have page numbers? That's horrible. Eight. Y'all have an eight? Anyway, it's the vernacular principle, number five. Y'all see that? So... Insofar, we're going to talk about how worship is the work of the people or the vocation. I like that word better. Work gets into moral, works, righteousness stuff. If you think of worship as the vocation of the people, then there's going to be a vernacular, a sociocultural flesh of the people. So kind of step back for a minute. Let me give you a big picture. We have talked some, if you're familiar with the five marks of the church or what we call total Christ Christianity, you know that there's these two trajectories that go through redemptive history. There's the covenantal trajectory, and there's the temple trajectory. That trajectory patterns after what John, how John introduces Jesus in John 1, verse 70, when he says, the word, now what's the word? It's, 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 not, it's an abstract, but, but it's the law, it's the covenant. The word, the covenantal word, which is eternal, which never changes, and is, a, is global, it's applicable to everybody universally, the, the Word, the divinity of God, the Word, became what? Flesh. And templed among us. So worship is going to be the bringing together, the covenant, the regulative principle wants to protect the covenant, the Word. So that what we are worshiping is true to the, div- to the divine Word, Jesus Christ which never changes. We don't want to conform Christ to anything in this world. Christ is eternal and, and static, if you will. He's, there's one Lord, and he's always the same Lord. That's the word that's, that is regulated by the covenant. The covenant regulates, then, our perception of that word. But that word has to now, before it becomes worship, before it can actually become a temple, the word has to become flesh. Now, that's what we call the vernacular principle. The Reformation was very big on this. Their problem with Rome was their hierarchicalism and that they prescribed flesh in worship 
from Rome, say, to Geneva. And they said, no, we can't have, there's no earthly center to worship. There's, I don't have to become Roman, and, and, and so, you know, with all due reference even to my Anglican friends, the Westminster, uh, in a, and remember, Westminster is Anglican, but Westminster rejected the Book of Common Prayer, or what we call a form of prayers. Form. The what the you know you know if you if you're familiar with the Book of Common Prayer, for instance, what is actually the elements of prayer are beautiful and good and, and noteworthy. <laughs> you know, often when I'm out of town and if I don't have a, a what I know to be a good Orthodox Presbyterian church. I will find an Anglican church, and even if it's not very orthodox, at least I know they're following the book, and the book is orthodox. And that's a real great comfort to us when we're in the Adirondacks, for instance. And we typically go Anglican for that reason. It's a little safer in that regard. Why? Because they are following a book, something I wish we Presbyterians did more. We have a, a, a directory of worship, and we you just a lot of Presbyterians don't follow it. Um, but... What I have against, though, the Anglican or the, the Rome or whatever these, is that what you've done very subtly is you've prescribed Angloism. And, and all of a sudden the words you're using and the form that it takes, the word is there, but the form that it takes is in a social cultural flesh or vernacular that may be foreign to the people. And that gets into style things, etc. So, for instance, we were um, we did a, a, a four when we did a, a, a um, you know Bridges of Hope B O H when we had a Bridges of Hope uh, retreat a couple about a month ago. I remember some tell me telling you about this. The the pa- eight pastors had a retreat, um, black churches, white churches, etc. I was asked to lead the 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 sort of worship session, and so I brought in what we would do here as a four movement worship service. You know, following, and it's, by the way, what you do in a book of, of common prayer. You know, it's pretty much the same thing. It's the movements of worship. Um, it's a temple service, not a revival service. And most of these guys had never done that. Now, as we did it, uh, we had, for instance, uh, the pastor of the city church was one of the guys there, right? He's an amazing musician. He's incredibly intuitive musically. So we did the four movements of worship. With He was doing the guitar, and I said, now let's do, let's do these, but I want us to be very free-spirited here. Let's follow these movements, but we're not going to do them in a very, because I recognize that half, the, you know, half these guys are coming out of a gospel tradition, half these people go. So let's do these, but let's do it in our vernacular. I was thinking in our vernacular. And it was so powerful. <coughs> and these guys were all saying, man, I'm taking this home. I'm taking this home. Because they love the order. They love the structure. But we were doing it in a way where it could be fairly spontaneous in terms of praying and things like that. We're trying to do that more and more. We're still not there in Goatville, but we're trying to make it more of that kind of a more free-spirited, spontaneous, following the same movements of worship. And it's something we're trying to work on. And when I lead it, I'm always kind of working with that. Um, but the point I'm making is, is that when we talk about the regular principle, what we're doing is we're very carefully uh, regulating the elements of our worship. So what we do has been prescribed. But in the vernacular, we're trying to do them in the form of the people. So this gets to your point. Um, but it's a very important question. So, for instance, I was talking with some African uh, pastors. And um, I'm meeting with them once a month. 
And, and, and there's a real movement going on right now against sort of the Anglicanization of the African church. So you, they call it literally the African church. And what, that's not a denomination. That is a, ch- a church that's feeling empowered to do things in an African black way, if you will. And so it's raised the question, what, what, are they, what are they changing? And are they changing elements of worship? Or are they adding elements to the worship, which would be a violation of the regular principle? Or are they doing the right elements but in, in, in a different form, which means they may change the instrument. It may mean that they will say it in a little different style or way. The length, what you wear, all kinds of stuff can start changing in that service. Now, here's the interesting thing. So I'm sitting right here when we had what's one of the uh, pastors here was one of the guys that we've hosted here. And, he's, and he makes the case that what, one of the central components of black, of, of Africans' worship is dreams and the use of dreams. As there's an element in worship where they interpret dreams. And I had to say, well, hmm, can you find that in the scripture? I mean, that's not a form, in other words. So we distinguish elements from forms. That's not an element. And we had to have that conversation. And so, therefore, at the very best, you would have to find a way to deal with the issue of dreams in a manner that, is, that works with what you're doing. So maybe there's prayers. And maybe in, during the prayer time, someone can say, in our way of saying it, I would say they didn't have a revelation of God. Remember, we don't believe in continued revelations. But they had a dream, and we call that providence. And that providence is shaking this person up. I.e., they had a dream. Maybe it was a bad dream. Maybe it was something about whatever. And so this dream has had an impact on this person. So they pray. They say, ask, they can, it would be a legitimate prayer. Say, I had this horrible dream last night, or I had a dream this week. And, and, and the dream in its substance was about my, I don't know, it, it, I'm clearly worried about my son. Please ask God to help me understand uh, from, but, but what I would want to do is direct that person to the scripture. And what the scripture would say concerning the issue of whatever you're anxious about with your son. You see what I'm doing? Prayer just becomes an act of providence. And we might could have worked it up into the context of a prayer at a time of sharing prayer, where then the response is to direct someone to scripture related to the ministry of word concerning what they were concerned about in in their dream. That's a very different thing than there's a separate place in the service where we're expecting God to speak to us through dreams. You see? And so that's the kind of stuff you do. But that gets to your big question, the vernacular principle. So we have the regular principle that preserves the glory of God and his divine sovereignty over worship. We have the vernacular principle, which, which protects the very people of God and their vocation so that what they do, they do it in their voice and in their style. And I can't tell you how intentional we are here about constantly measuring what we're doing in those two principles. I mean, almost, and I'm particularly very active at this in a, in a staff meeting where I'm constantly saying, "No, hold it. Why did we just make? Why did we have such a strong uh, prelude to this song? It felt very manipulative to me. Why couldn't we just go for? It? People were ready to sing. Let them go. Get out of the way. Let the music get out of the way. We don't have to." Get everything too programmed. You see, there's, so there's sometimes where I'll say, you know, transition from song A to B. Let's don't have this long, what do you call it, prelude, and everybody's kind of singing and then, let me sing. <laughs> you know, but sometimes it's great to have a prelude. 
because it sets it up right. You know, and so you're, it's, a, it's a subjective call on it. But we're always thinking like that. All right, any questions about the regular principle and the vernacular principle? If nothing else, you're getting a sense for what's happening behind the closed doors, I guess. So you see that principle in Scripture, by the way. Here's some Scripture references. It's very, look, and how it is that we hear each of us in our own native language. That was at the very heart of the temple formation in Pentecost. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I have an exact question, but wondering about, like, the, the missional nature of the church and how that informs mm-hmm. what vernacular we take on, whether mm-hmm. it is, like, the people already here or the people we want to reach mm-hmm. to come in and mm-hmm. see, oh, this is my flesh. Right. Um, that's right. I think like, that's right. Like, how do you balance? Um, well, the fact that you're even wanting to do that is, is a success to me. I mean, we, there, this is a success that you would ask it just like that. My point is it's success that you would ask it that way. It's not, it's easier to ask than it is to do. Let's just say it. But the fact that you're aware that we've got to distinguish between elements and forms. And yes, we need to put it in forms that are in the social, cultural, vernacular flesh of the people. And, and by people, I mean the parish that we're here to reach, New Haven. And there's many pockets of flesh in New Haven. And, some, and so the, at some point we say we want to blend it to reach all those pockets at once. But at some point you can't blend it enough. And that's when you start another service. And so they can have a more unique, distinct blend. And what you're doing is, is exegeting the scripture for the elements. You're asking what is the... Imp- and what's very important, we're going to get to this next. So let's just go to it next. Let's go to the directory principle. Because that actually gets to your point. Find me the directory principle there. Anybody see it? It's the next one. Oh, that's, that makes sense. So we, what we did is, uh, where is it? Five, six, we're at six? Five, four, six. It, the stuff I've already done would have made sense of this theologically, but we'll go back and do it that way. All these movements and everything is cool. cool. Um, a little bit more, a tiny bit more. I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Okay, forms. There we go. We're getting into that. Must have passed it. Let's go back down. See, no, that's that's not where it starts though. Vernacular. Where's the regulative principle? Uh, I mean, oh, you're saying it's not a. It's six. Yeah, I say the regular principle proves the the vernacular principle serves the edification worship. There it is. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So how do we how do we answer that question? She just asked a great question, and and so how do we answer it? This is number six. The way our assembly answered is said, well, we're not going to prescribe a book of forms. Why? They were worried about form worship. And they're also worried about an unedifying, an unspirit-filled ministry. One of their real concerns was that if you have a worship that's so prescribed that it doesn't require a spirit-filled pastor, then you're getting in trouble. And, And an unconverted pastor. In other words, someone who's able to discern the word and then translate the word into the flesh of the people in a manner that was spirit filled. So here's, here's what it does. A directed principle versus a subscription. So the one view is you, there's three views of how you do this, the answer your question to get back to your question. There's three ways to to view it. One is, well, we, we, in a hierarchical system, it's going to be prescribed from the pop top down in a, in a vulgar way of saying it from the top down. It's going to be prescribed. So some committee over at some place sits down, writes a book, and says, no, use it. 
and it's not just telling you what to do and directing you in general how how it what its intent is to doing it. It goes beyond that and subscribes to certain forms. Now, Grant, I'm sure you can play with those forms, right? You you would know this more than I would. There's some yeah. flexibility there. The, the African uh, churches yeah. will rewrite the prayers yeah. and, and so forth. The the, the content. Okay. Uh, so that's but and that is by the way a that is a post reformational adaptation if you remember, okay so so that's one the hierarchy it flows with your understanding of government. Number two, another one on the other stream is a spontaneous what do you call that a extemporary you know just it's 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 no forms, so prescribed forms no forms, <laughs> and uh, that's that's another view. Well, the directory is somewhere in the middle here. And here's what it does. Our confession does acknowledge that our response to God will necessarily include such things as are beyond the teachings of Scripture and ordered by what amounts to common sense, i.e., so for instance, after affirming the above regulative principle in chapter 1-6, our confession also affirms a vernacular sensitive principle as follows. And I read, Nevertheless, after saying what we've already read, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God. Notice it did not say Revelation of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the word and that are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies, that's what we're talking about, vernacular, which are to be ordered by the light of nature, common sense, and Christian wisdom according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. So how then are these things ordered? Three traditional responses Formalism, formlessism, or directed forms. And that's what we do. Here's the way it puts it in our confession. Our standards will clarify that, quote, the Lord Jesus Christ has prescribed no fixed forms for public worship, but in the interest of life and power and worship, has given his church a large measure of liberty in this matter. Forms, not elements. It may not be forgotten, however, that there is true liberty only where the rules of God's word are observed and the spirit of the Lord is that all things must be done decently and in order and that God's people should serve him with reverence and the beauty of holiness. So what did they do? They directed. So, okay, if one of the elements is you should pray. Well, then what the, what the assembly did is it went to the scripture and said, now what is the purpose of prayer? What's it supposed to accomplish in worship? And it, it comes up with the answers to that. Now, you, local pastor, liturgist, whoever, you discern how to accomplish, how to do prayer in a way that, it, that gets the, the intended result of prayer in the life of these particular people. And you know how far to go, how less to go, because you're one of them. So, so the idea here, and so this is, I give you this summary of the convention, because this was a major, major uh, discussion during the Westminster Assembly. It, it was one of the largest discussions that they had. And this kind of gets, this kind of summarizes it. Uh, one guy summarizes it and he said this. Um, I'll just quote this in the directory. So we have what's called a directory, not a book of prayers, but a directory for prayers. And that's the difference. Um, and here's the quote that comes out of it. I'm quoting here. Means to make and increase an idle and under edifying ministry which contented itself with set forms made to their hands by others without putting forth themselves to exercise the gift of prayer with which our Lord Jesus Christ pleases to furnish all his servants whom he calls it office. See, that's what they were concerned to do. 
They were concerned for a converted ministry, concerned for a gifted and spirit-filled ministry, uh, on and on and on. So here, here's, uh, this was kind of funny. Well, I won't go through all of this. Um, but in 1744, entitled The Directory for the Public Worship of God, the, prefe- the preface commenced with a typical Puritan thesis that, quote, the Anglican Reformation remains to be finished. The Book of Common Prayer, while commendable in its day, had become a burden upon the conscience of sundry good Christians, causing ministers to be deprived and laity to be kept from the Lord's table. It produced prayer book idolatry to the deprecation of preaching. It confirmed the papists in their own superstition, rendering the clergy idle and unedifying, and brought untold contention upon the church. Now, look, you know, this is a polemical statement, so please forgive. It's pretty accurate. <laughs> well, maybe. But it's it's polemical. And I'm, I think there's a lot that comes out of the you know that tradition that's beautiful. But, but this was their experience, uh, and, and that it was restraining the people from bringing the word and the element of worship into a context where a Greek could feel, could pray, and it felt their words pray, not barring the words of someone else, or our emotions and the way you experience it. So it's very true that there's some cultures that are much more effervescent. I mean, can you imagine Jamaicans compared to Anglicans. I mean, and when I say Anglicans, I don't mean the domination. I mean, you know, Anglos are very, we're, we're, we're very, hold it very close to the chest kind of people. Stiff. Well, I don't want to say stiff. Now, that's a Bible term, which means sinful. I'm just saying we're, we're, we tend to be very, you know, don't, don't show it. Versus other cultures that are extremely, you know. And so, sure, that's going to change the way you do worship. And that should. Yeah. The thing that, with the Book of Common Prayer, and that's why one of the things we like about the worship here, is it becomes so rote, the Book yeah, of Common right. Prayer, that you're not even thinking about what you're saying. Yeah. You know the words. You've been saying them since you were a child. And they don't begin to mean anything. Right. And each week when you change the confession or you change mm-hmm. the prayers, it means something because you are actually involved. In yeah, there's a, there's a tension even there. I mean, to some degree, I hope that a child that raises this church begins to identify I, there needs to be a little bit of a rut <laughs> something that they can they can grow up with and know and it, it just grounds them True. but then like you said but it's but the whole point of this is that it requires a spirit filled ministry if, if, if you're up there and you don't have to think and it's and it and it ceases to be an alive event then I think that's when any, and any church can do that, by the way. You can, you can be unscripted and be doing that. I mean, I led worship in a character context for seven years up front with my guitar. And, man, it, it got, I mean, I, got, I was able to rotely be spontaneous. It was, I was doing exactly what you would expect me to do as a worship leader. And I was, doing, I was playing right into it. So it can happen. Look, let's don't, let's don't be self-righteous here in Presbyterianism. We, we, it can happen anywhere in any way. You know, and that's the key. I mean, I, I, you know, again, I come out of a context that was very more like what's happening down at the city church. For, and, and, you know, and I can, it, it, that becomes rote too, where you're just kind of, okay, here we go again. I know exactly what's happening now. I know exactly what's going to happen here. And, you know, and yet what's worse is it's not, gut, but there's something roteness about our service that I want, which gets us to another topic. But is there another question? Because we're running out of time, but I at least need to make point of something. Yeah. Any other questions about that issue of vernacular? So we've done the doxological, we've done the regulative, we've done the vernacular principle. Um, I'm just going to point out a few things real quickly. This should be common. You should know this intuitively. But number three is what I call the covenant principle. 
And by the covenant principle, and I'm working one of these trajectories again, I mean the principle wherein uh, we are following the logic of the gospel. Have you ever noticed in our worship service that, and I've said this many times if you've been around, but I'll sometimes I'll introduce it or we will introduce it and I'll say, look, some services get you to the gospel. I call that a revival service, band, Bible, opportunity. Other services do the gospel. And that's called a temple service or a covenantal worship service. And the gospel pattern is then, and it comes right out of the temple, is exactly the movements that you would engage as becoming a Christian. If you stop and think about it. So what would that be? These dialogical movements. Notice I say dialogical, which means God, downward, human, responsive, upward. So the whole service is a God, human word, human, God word, interaction going on constantly. God declares, I am your God, you are my people, as then covenantly fulfilled in Christ. The people respond by rendering praise and thanksgiving to God, by renewing vows, exclusive faith, commitment to God through Christ. Christ is present in, with, and through the covenantal worship to bring about his life-giving and salvific purpose to the praise of his glorious grace. What are those movements of worship? And we're get, we get them, by the way, you're going to see this in a minute, right out of uh, Revelations. But there's going to be a moment, a movement of praise and adoration, a movement of confession and absolution, and there's different aspects to it, a movement of, uh, of reading Scripture and word and sacrament. We, we bring those together. You know, think about it. The Word is sacramental. We believe that Christ is in, with, and through the Word to make it come alive, to edify us. And the sacrament is also regulated by the Word. So Word and sacrament, we feel, and from Scripture, comes together. Those are, those are like two sides of the same coin. You enact the Word. and in, in the prophetic tradition, the words were not only spoken, they were enacted. If this whole service is about Christ in the gospel, ultimately, then you're going to proclaim it and you're going to enact it. So we have four movements, not five. Word and sacrament are one movement. Word preached, the gospel preached, the gospel enacted. And we see that in the scriptures, you'll see. And so we have those movements, and then, of course, coronation and benediction. Um, Those are the four movements Look at the way they they there are. This is where I wanted to really slow down just for a minute. Um, principle number four: Temple versus revival. I've already mentioned what I've said, but but listen to the Hebrews. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but what are we doing when we come into worship every Sunday? We're not joining. We are genuinely in the mystery of what we see in Anabano. As God is coming to us, we are going to Him. There is a kind of Again, God, human word, human, God word, interaction going on. So Hebrews is all about this worship. So Hebrews 10 introduces this concept here, and, he, and someone read that for me, because I'm talking too much. The let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what does he say there? 
He's talking about worship, isn't he? Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. How? Not neglecting to meet. That word is ecclesia, to assemble together. Some, even back then, were neglecting worship. And he's saying you can't do that. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. Now notice he later picks up with this again. This is all part of the same theme, and it goes on for chapters. And then in Hebrews 12, he's telling you what's happening when you come into the assembly. And verses 19 there, I start with 19. I'm going to skip it a little bit. He's contrasting what happens now to what happened when the people of God worshipped God at the, at the mountain under the Old Covenant before the sacrifices had been fulfilled. And then they came to God, and it was a terrifying experience. You see? And then look what he says, but. You see that after I tremble with fear? But you, post-Christ, after the sacrifices, all that's been accomplished, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festive gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, that word assembly, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect in Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Go down to that second quote there by Edmund Clowney. The picture of the church here as a worshiping assembly is nowhere more powerfully presented than by the author epistles. He contrasts the worship of God at Mount Sinai with the worship of the new covenant. We do not come to Mount Sinai in our worship, but to Mount Zion. That Zion is not the earthly, but the heavenly Zion the sanctuary of the eternal city of God. For the author of Hebrews, this is not a figurative way of speaking. In the mystery of the sacraments, we believe this is really happening. The heavenly Jerusalem is not a platonic abstraction. It is as real as the living God, as real as the risen body of Jesus Christ. In our worship in Christ's church, we approach the throne of God, the judge of all. We enter into this festival assembly of the saints and the angels. We gather in spirit and in the spirits of just men made perfect. We enter the assembly of the glory through Christ, one mediator, the blood of his atoning death, and for that reason we must hear and heed the word of the Lord and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That's what's happening in worship. But if that's what's happening in worship, where would you turn to know what we're to do in worship? Well, you've had the apostolic foundation to know what we do. You go to Revelations to see what's the vision of worship there. And that's exactly what we've done. And you go to Revelations 4 and 5. I'm not going to, you're going to have to go back and skim this if you'd like to do it. But we we find ourselves in the the throne room of the heavenly temple in chapter 4 and 5, right? Movement number one, I'm not going to go through this. Every one of these movements are represented in in your bulletin. But think about how it begins. It begins with an invitation. God inviting us. And this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. That's unbelievable. It's open. The Holy of Holies, it's open, inviting, come in. It's incredible. And the first voice which I heard speak to me like a trumpet said, come up here. Come up here. That's what's happening in worship. Come up here. Get out out of that world. Come on up here. 
And at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one was seated on the throne. And it goes through and describes him and what he was, Jesus Christ. And the response, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Um, it's an amazing thing. Singing the songs, worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. So you have this amazing invitation and then doxology response. You know, inviting to come, we come, we encounter the living God, description, and now we respond with praise. Movement number one. Movement number two, confession absolution. Beholding his glory, we go, oh my God, in ourselves, in our own might, we're screwed, <laughs> basically. Then I saw on the right hand of him who seated on the throne a scroll. Now, what is a scroll? This is the scroll of life. Those who, who are judged. In or out. And yet, no one was worthy to open the scroll. We look around to each other and we go, can you open? I can't open the scroll. I'm unworthy. Can you open the scroll? No, I can't open the scroll. And everybody realized there was no one worthy to open the scroll. That's confession. There's a confession here. In this great apocalyptic genre, yeah, so it may be a little thing, but there's a, there's a confession. No one here is worthy to open the scroll of the gospel of good news and they start weeping uncontrollably weeping and of course uh, and then weep no more behold the lion and here's the absolution and the lion of the Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals you're in good news and that moves us to word and response of faith and Eucharistic celebration you go through here, you see the Lamb of God who was slain. You remember him, you see him. This is following the Eucharistic image that the early church was doing every week. And again, the one worthy of the of scroll, worthy, and we're remembering and we're being taught through word and sacrament again what it was that was accomplished for us in our salvation, that he was slain by his blood, ransomed for the people of God. This is like a, a confession of faith right now. And then all of that concludes with a coronation, and, and, and then, then everything's right with God. And now I looked and I heard around the throne all the living creatures, the elders, who've come through these four movements. And what are they doing now? They are coronating him their king. A time of renewal, a time of recommitment, and coronation. And then, of course, uh, with that. So that's, that's, that's worship. That's what we're doing here. And uh, it's just an amazing and glorious thing. Any questions about that? The beginning of that in Isaiah 6. Yeah, that's right. Where he, his man of unclean lips, and that's right. You see this pattern everywhere. I mean, this is a, this, you can find the same pattern in the, in the, in the uh, temple of the Old Testament. Even the stations, if you stop and think about it, are stations that move you through there. So that by the time you're in the Holy of Holies, you're cleansed by the water, they're sacrificed as being done in front of that. Think about the, the stations, and it's all there. Um, I want to stop there. I, there's a couple of, you know, let's see here. I think that, oh, the evangelistic thing. We talked about it a little bit, but there is there's some, the, the, another thing I want to say. Tim Keller had a little paper that was really well done, and um, he's making the case that, that, that worship is evangelistic. And there's some great uh, scriptures here. You can read them. Um, but we should never think of, Worship is unevangelistic, but what what we want to do is we don't want to make a false dichotomy between uh, a discipleship service and an evangelistic service, or a, a service for the sake of edification of the saints versus a service for the 
it's all. And this is where I think, you know, again, Keller has done a wonderful job of reminding us that there's nothing, and, and, this, is, and this is something that I know I've emphasized a lot to our guys, there's not one thing in Scripture that's not gospel. And if you don't know the good news behind what it is, then we haven't done our job. I don't care what it is. Whatever it is, it's gospel. It's going to be related. We should be able to relate it to the gospel. And so, you know, it's no, there's no doubt that I'm not expecting that everything done in worship is equally, even Paul, even Peter admits in Peter that not everything is equally plain in Scripture. So there's no doubt, I'm not at all bothered if someone comes to me and, and worships, you know, about 80% of that just went right over my head. That may be because I did a bad job teaching, so I'll, I'll certainly acknowledge that or, or doing it. But it may be that they're just not prepared for it yet. That what, but, but then I'll say, but what didn't get over your head? Did you, did you even notice just, I mean, it's amazing how much more people are getting than they even know. I say this a lot. If you've read the book on children in worship, you'll see that I make a big point about it. That, that book on children in worship and the argument I make for why children should be there is, you know, in the stages working through it, um, is a great argument for why we should bring non-believers. You know, I ought to just take the same thing and just rewrite it for that, that purpose. Why we want unbelievers. That's a good idea. I actually thought I should think about that. Um, it just changed a little bit, but why should we bring unbelievers to worship? Because there's a lot happening there, even if they're still not understanding a lot, because it takes time. So I want to preach to you, some of you have been in the church for however many years, and you're you know, very mature Christians asking very mature questions, or you wouldn't be in this room probably. And I want, I, man, I want the gospel for you. I'm not going to neglect you. But you know, becoming a you know, get you in the church. And now you don't matter anymore. Bull, you're God's children. And he loves you, and he wants you to be edified. But so there we there'll be times when I'm going to honestly in my head I'm thinking you know this is for Joanne. You know I know that Joanne's going to be asking this kind of question, and by God she deserves to get the answer. And that answer is probably going to blow this guy away over here. This is his first time in the church. Cool. We're just going to do it anyway. But on the other hand, there's something being stated to that guy that's great. Wow, I didn't get that. This thing's way over my head. There's something really big going on here. Even if that's all they get, there's something big going on here. Or, but, but what did they get? Even if they got nothing, even if there was nothing verbally said that they get, which I pray to God would never happen. I mean, there's not a, there's not a confession and absolution that we ever do here that I don't think is done in a pretty simple way that a pretty much of a third-year-old can understand. How old can you talk? Third, fourth, fifth, fourth, fifth, fifth. I mean, it's pretty simple, the absolution. I mean, so you're going to get the gospel three or four times in the service. But, but, but even if they got nothing but four movements, I just saw, we, we just, whatever, whatever, we did something, we just kind of seemed to be praising God. And then we just started confessing sins. And then he started talking to us. And then we just coordinated him, and the last word was his, and he just gave us a blessing. Well, they just heard the gospel without one word. You see? So there's a lot more going on in evangelistic worship here. And what's interesting scripturally is how often, though, worship is done public. So the key here is it's public. And that's where I think we need to keep working really, really hard. Because it's true that though I don't want to, I'm not going to dummy down worship. I don't think that's really good evangelism, actually. But on the other hand, I need to do worship as if the whole city were present. And it's something we need to work on. I know I do. Where I'm thinking to myself, 
Now, what would it be like for Lisa's friends at school to be here? While I'm not going to dummy it down, I am going to try to speak it in a manner that that person. So I'm going to try to avoid buzzwords. I'm going to try to avoid Christianese. I'm going to try to avoid a lot of stuff that I know I don't avoid enough. So I'm telling you that right now because you get going and you just talk out of your own knowledge. But the point is we need to keep working and pushing back and saying things in a way as if your whole neighborhood were present. I mean, it would, it affects you. I'll never forget when I did my father's, uh, it was a great exercise, but when I did my father's funeral, knowing, I know that world very well. I grew up in it and it's an extraordinarily unchurched world. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there talking to a congregation and I can pretty much guarantee you 90% of the people there had not been in church in 10 years. And maybe on a Sunday or maybe on a Christmas. And that's just my people, okay? That's my people. Sorry. And I'm sitting there looking at these faces where I drunk beer with some of these people, where my father had drunk beer with some of these people. I'm sitting there looking at these people thinking, man, I just know what they're thinking here. And it was amazing how that affected the way that I proclaimed everything I proclaimed. Just, just always kind of saying it in a way that I thought, okay, maybe I think this is the way they could hear this. And, and it could rebuke me because I remember thinking to myself, you know, I should be doing that every day, whether I look out there and see those people or not. So that's what evangelistic worship is about. I'm, that's, I'm through. Any questions? I want to make a comment. One of the things that I really like, the way you and Kevin and, and others do it, is you take a little bit of time to explain mm-hmm. why we're doing certain mm-hmm. things. You, you'll take a hymn that we yeah. might sing before confession yeah. and hit Thank you. Why do we sing that? What do those yeah. words mean? Why are we? And one of the things we have to do is we can't do every move. We can't give explanation to every movement every week, right. or it'd be a very even longer than it is. So what we'll do is we'll we. But I do remind our staff. I said let's let's pick and shoot. But every week at least pick something that you think I'm going to spend a little more time here and make sure that people understand what's going on. Even if we yeah. heard it, yeah. I've just been it for a long time. It's a good refresher. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, I mean, again, there's some people that I think of and other churches I think that do, do a better job of that than us, and we're still working on it. We, you know, and, and I think we have a long way to go with it, but we are working on it, so thank you. Maybe we want to check one of those churches. No, you should. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you. I know I went about 10 minutes late, but um, anyway, I hope you have a greater sense for worship, and I do feel like we just need to close in prayer. Don't y'all? Father, we just stop and... What I don't know. It's just it's just too big to even know how to articulate. Lord, thank you that you want to be with us. Thank you that you've taken such great, gone to such great extent to protect what we do, so that when we meet, we meet with you, the true and living God, not a God of our own fabrication. But Lord, help us. We know, Lord, that um, we see in the history of Israel how. The way they worshiped got them in trouble all the time. And we know, Lord, that we are prone after them to do the same thing. So, Father, please help us in this church and all of our churches. Help protect us. Help us to be conscientious and diligent to do the best we can to continually go back to your Scripture and, and derive what we do and how we do it from your Scripture. And yet, Lord, also we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit and the filling of your Spirit that we would know how to Bring your word and bring these these elements of service into the lifeblood of the people of the city. Help us to, Lord, know what form it should take. Help us to know everything from how long a sermon should be to how long a prayer should be to what style we, we dress, what style we talk, 
without once compromising the content, but doing it in a manner that is in the vernacular, in the flesh of the people. And Lord, most of all, we pray, God, that you would, uh, that you would show up every Sunday. Uh, it's a gift that you would. Just keep that door open to heaven, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.